Welcome to the Mad Dad Movie Review, a podcast full of first-time movie reviews starring Mads and her dad. I'm Mads. And I'm her dad. And and this this is Mad Dad Dad Movie Movie Review. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to an all-new exciting episode of the Halloween Horathon, where it's another day of October, so we're going to talk about another horror movie. And what horror movie are we talking about today? Madeline! Tales of the Dark Side, the movie. Stephen King. Originator of Pet Cemetery. <gasps> Arthur Conan Doyle, author of Sherlock Holmes. Michael McDowell, creator of Beetlejuice. George Romero, director of Night of the Living Dead. Now, these four masters of everlasting horror bring to the screen four tales of overwhelming terror. <laughs> I warned them, but they wouldn't listen. Tales of diabolical fate. You promised you'd never die! Tales of ghastly revenge. Grow, O light. Rise, O light. Come forth, O light. Open his eyes. Tales of ruthless evil. That has killed three people in this household. I don't believe this. Kill it, bury it, and bring me its tail. Tales from the dark side. Well, that just about takes care of that, doesn't it? Come, live the nightmare of your choice. Tales. From the dark side. The movie. Alright guys, like I said, welcome back to another show. And by the sounds of that voice, I have a very special, special returning co-host. Today, what's up Mads? (laughs) (laughs) What's up? (laughs) You know, people listening to this episode... Like, the new people that have tuned in the last couple of weeks who have just heard me are probably, like, thinking that Mad Dad is, like, the title of, like, just, I'm, I'm a dad and I'm a mad person. Just <laughs> doing these mad reviews like a madman. And they have no idea that I have a daughter who I actually co-host. <laughs> His name is Madeline. But guess what? I got her back. I got her back. She's back. Not quite full-time yet, but we're still getting there. But I got her back for this episode. So as she said, we're talking about 1990s Tales from the Dark Side, the movie. Let's just jump into it. Hit that nitty gritty. So let's get down to the nitty gritty. So Tales from the Dark Side, the movie was released on May 4th, 1990 from Paramount Pictures. It opened up in third place against Pretty Woman, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and Spaced Invaders. Opening weekend box office of $5.1 million going on to grow $16.4 million on a $3.5 million budget. So, yeah. 
movie, movie made some money, and that's what you took from that. Was that's like, the first game. <laughs> Ninja Turtles beat this at the box office. <laughs> that was in second. This opened in third. And it wasn't even Ninja Turtles' first weekend, I don't think. No, it wasn't, because that movie opened up back in Which, March. Um, Ninja Turtles film was it? The original, the OG. Oh, that, oh, that I used to have on the that. The first live-action yeah. one. Yeah, exactly. That CD thing. You the mean, C- you mean a saying. DVD? Yeah. <laughs> CD thing. Oh, man. This may look like a silver record, but it is not a silver record. It's a laser disc. I'm sorry. I was quoting SLC Punk. <laughs> All right. So back to this. The Crew Involved, directed by John Harrison, produced by Mitchell Gallen and Richard Rubenstein. Written for the screen by Michael McDowell and George A. Romero, based on Lot 49, no, Lot 249 by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and the story of The Cat from Hell by Stephen King. Music by John Harrison, and there's a lot of people who did music, and I'll explain why. Music by John Harrison, Chaz Jenkel, Jim Manzi, Pat Reagan, and Donald Rubenstein. Edited by Harry B. Miller III. Cinematography by Rich Robert Draper. Let's take a look at the players involved. We've got Deborah Harry in this as Betty, Matthew Lawrence as Timmy, Steve Buscemi as Bellingham, Julianne Moore as Susan, Christian Slater as Andy, William Hickey as uh, Drogan, David Johansson as Halston, James Remar as Preston, Ray Don Chong as Carola, and Robert Klein as Wyatt. All right, so yeah, before we really jump into things like... I don't know. It's it's been. A, what are you looking at? I'm looking at the priest and how he actually got a role in this. I'm confused of how. The 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 priest from the uh the the wraparound story. Yeah, he said. Oh. Yeah, that was weird. That that random priest got a got a th- second billing credit when like he just says, "Hey, remember to come to service on Sunday." That's it. That's all he yeah, does. Like three seconds. And it's not even like I don't even think it's his voice. I think um someone did voice uh, ADR on that. I don't think he was moving his mouth. Yeah, that's why ADR is pretty obvious. Um, <laughs> so yeah, as of this recording, what is it, October 19th? No. No, it's not. It's 17th? October 17th, yeah. So we're like the, the halfway mark to Halloween. We cool. We have actually two weeks left. Um, hmm? We have like a week or two left, yeah. Yeah. Uh, cool. All right. Let's just jump into the critics. Let's just go over to the critics' corner. All right, so Tales from the Dark Side, the movie has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 43% from 21 reviews, a meta score of 54 from 13 reviews, and a letterbox score of 3.1 out of 5. Time Out Magazine said, Harrison never quite transcends the inherently limited format. Janet Maslin of the New York Times wrote, Thanks to casting that is savier than the horror norm, and to direction by John Harrison that is workmanlike, sometimes even witty, at least it's fun. And then Entertainment Weekly. I mean, I didn't get a lot of quotes from this. The reception of this was pretty, uh, I actually had to like dive into like articles. Like I had to use the Google <laughs> platform to actually search for reviews. And I got a couple quotes. Uh, this hefty chunk of change from Entertainment Weekly. 
Horror compilation films are usually a mixed bag, and Tales from the Dark Side is more mixed than most. Its title aside, this slow, clunky, omnibus film feels more like a TV show than a movie. Well, considering that it came from a TV show. (laughs) It's not very scary, and there isn't much contrast among the episodes. They're about a killer mummy, a killer cat, a killer gremlin, and a killer housewife. So much for subtlety, atmosphere, suggestion. And that's it. That's pretty much all I got. I mean, the general consensus of this film is pretty much a mixed bag, more bad than good. I mean, judging, I'm, I'm, I keep on looking at this 43 and 54 scores, and I'm like, the only quotes I could find were not positive ones, but I mean, they're somewhere out there. Um, so why do I love this film? Well, shit, I'll tell you why. I love this film because I've always been a big anthology horror fan. I love this film because of the way transition shots are used to tell the story in The Cat from Hell. I love this film because of Buster Poindexter getting got, got, got. I love this film because of K&B's incredible practical effects and makeup. I love this film because of the gargoyle transformation sequence, dot, dot, dot. It's pretty incredible. I love this film because of Blondie and her role as the witch. I love this film because of the fact that it's Julianne Moore's first movie and she loves saying it. I love this film because of the -the over-the-top Nicholson portrayal Christian Slater gives us. I love this film because of the insane death scenes featured throughout. And finally, I love this film because don't you just love happy endings? So diving into the origins... I didn't write anything down because I watched the documentary on the screen disc and it's pretty cut and dry here. Um, Tales from the Dark Side was a horror anthology TV show in the 80s created by George A. Romero, um, kind of akin to the old Tales from the Crypt. Um, Amazing Stories was another one that was out. That was more sci-fi though. That was a Stephen King production. Not Stephen King. um, (laughs) Whoops, got horror on the brain. Um, Steven Spielberg, that was more his show. Uh, but yeah, Tales from the Dark Side was, a, was around the mid-80s. It was on for several seasons, and then after the show ended, they pretty much had the concept they wanted to keep going, and they had this idea for three tales that were darker than what you would show on the, the TV series. They got a screenplay together, they pitched it to several studios who, surprisingly enough to their, to them, um, turned them down until Paramount was like, yeah, we'll put this out. Tell us in the dark side? Sure, it's a name title. So uh, that's what happened. I, I think uh, what I say was three and a half million. I think that's a pretty modest budget for a late 80s, early 90s genre title. It's not a lot, lot, but for back then... Well, yeah, back then yeah, it's a lot. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah when yeah, inflation and all that, it is a lot. So that's pretty much where the show, where this, the movie came from. It was a show originally, branched out into a film. They got John Harrison, who directed several of the episodes of the show. He was kind of always involved, not to mention he was, in a sense, kind of Romero's old protege. He was a assistant director for Creep Show and Day of the Dead, and he actually did the music for Creep Show, um, which I st- I love John Harrison's score for Creep Show. It's actually saved on my Spotify playlist. It's um, it's it's a great score if you're listening for that genre feel, that horror feel. Um, 
And he did the music for Day of the Dead, and he did some of the music in this. So that is John Harrison in a nutshell. Um, so without further ado, you just want to dive into this movie? I keep on using that term, diving in. Let's just, let me change it up. Do you wanna do you wanna jump into this? <laughs> Let's break this film down. So we begin with opening credits starting off to the opening piano of the original Tales from the Dark Side theme. That kicks into a full orchestrated version of the song as the title card is shown. From there we are we, we open with a small town during the day as Betty is leaving the store and driving away in her red Jeep Cherokee with shots of her driving home through town. With uh, one of the shots being your boy, the priest. <laughs> Keep on bringing that damn priest up. I love the priest. <laughs> it's just this throwaway priest as she's driving by, just saying, hey, you don't remember and church? Come to church on Sunday. And somehow he got second billing <laughs> in the credits. Um, and then we're... We get, we're, we're, we see we're inside Betty's home and we see a door handle trying to be opened from the inside and then it suddenly stops as Betty begins unlocking her door and enters the house with her groceries. So it's it's Betty who's this is the role Blondie's playing. Um, Blondie being a big musician, heart of glass, dreaming, stuff like that. Uh, she dipped into some Acting roles in the 80s. I know she was in Videodrome, this, and uh, showed up in John Carpenter's Body Parts. Never seen um, no, not Body Parts. <laughs> no, was it called Body Parts? He did an anthology show and a movie in the early 90s. Pretty sure it's called Body Parts. Anyway, she comes in with her groceries, and she begins prepping for a big dinner party. She goes and opens the door with the handle that we saw being tampered with earlier, and it's revealed inside that it's a cellar with stone walls and a little boy named Timmy who is chained to the wall. Timmy, the very young Matthew Lawrence from Mrs. Doubtfire. Um, he has an uh, has older brother, Joey Lawrence, from... Uh, Whoa! When I hear Timmy, I reminds me of Timmy Turner. Timmy Turner. Don't know who that is, but I'm sure it's um, a hell of a guy. It's uh, Nicola Gotcha. Yeah. So it's revealed that she's going to cook him for her dinner party. She asks him what happened to the book that she gave him, and a giant Tales from the Crypt book is just thrown at her from the darkness. It's a pretty funny shot. She tells him it was her favorite book growing up and asks her what story was his favorite. He doesn't care and instead begins screaming for help which annoys Betty more than anything else. That would annoy <laughs> Kid just screaming. So we, get, we get a shot of the clock. It's 12.15, and she mentions that he has to be in the oven by 1.30, but evisceration will take at least an hour. And then she explains to him what that means. That's basically when the process of just dissecting your meat, pulling out the heart and lungs and everything that isn't edible, um, and then stuffing it with stuff and sewing it back up and popping that in the oven uh so she explains what that is just like i explained to you in the audience she says that she should start now but timmy wants to read her a story from the book first and that cuts to the beginning of lot 249 which begins with a character named bellingham this is steve buscemi 
making his second appearance on the podcast as we talked about him in Reservoir Dogs a couple months ago. He's getting a large box or a large crate delivered to his dorm room with Timmy's voiceover saying that Bellingham was the victim of some something nasty that rich friends and classmates Andy and Lee did to him. Andy and Lee, which is Christian Slater and uh, Robert Sedgwick's characters' names, are walking. They're walking the campus from tennis practice, and uh, talking about Lee going to Europe for the summer for school while Andy is concerned because his sister, who also happens to be Lee's girlfriend, is the one who wrote the proposal and that he'll be kicked out. So these people are the ones behind setting Billingham up. And it's it's actually, well, it's not these people. It's Lee and his girlfriend, um, Andy's sister. Uh, Lee is a concern and jokes it off. And then we're, we cut inside uh, to Andy and Bellingham's dorm. Andy tells Lee that he hopes Bellingham doesn't find out or else he'll be the one to expose him. Lee says he's not worried because Bellingham has the hots for his sister, so he'll be fine. And this is when Bellingham walks out of his room while the two are still in the hall and is introduced by Andy to Lee. I guess they didn't actually know each other by that. That's I don't know. That, that kind of confused me. Uh, Bellingham plays into the coincidence that he also applied for the Penrose Fellowship that Lee won, to which Lee says it's all competition and that someone always had to win. And Bellingham responds by saying, but not always the better man. Bellingham then goes to tip the movers, whips up in his wallet, and only has $3. And then that's when Lee intervenes in an arrogant way, giving the movers a $100 bill and telling Bellingham, no, 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 allow me. Um, Andy instead, Andy says instead of paying his friend back, why doesn't Bellingham just let the two come inside and check out what's inside the crate? And him and his friend will just write it off. Bellingham then allows them in, and this is when we set we get the whole setup from the inside of Bellingham's dorm. He tells them that if Lot Two Four Nine lives up to his expectations, then it won't matter that he is that he was cheated out of the Penrose. Um, when Lee asked about it, Bellingham tells him something unfortunate happened to him the day before the committee was announcing their decision, and he was accused of stealing a pre-Columbian Zuni fetish from the museum. When Lee asks if he did it, Bellingham responds, I loathe Zuni aesthetics. But by the time I was cleared, the committee already decided in your in your favor. I'm talking about Lee. Lee continues to play dumb about all this, um, especially after Andy asks if he was if he was told who notified them, and he says it was an anonymous tip. So Bellingham approaches them from behind with a crowbar and it looks like he's going to attack them. The old cliche, but no, he's just going to slap it down and bust open that crate with the crowbar where it's revealed that there's actually a mummy's tomb inside with an actual mummy inside. Bellingham begins clipping the mummy's wrap as Lee is like, I'm done. I'm out. I'm checking out and dips. So Lee gets home, and this is where we're introduced to the Julianne Moore character of Susan, who I said happens to be Andy's sister. She's in there working out, and he comes in, and he's like, you are not going to believe what your brother Andy is doing right now. And then he proceeds to tell her about how Andy's with him unwrapping a mummy, and Lee tells her that he told Andy she wrote the resume and mentions how Bellingham told him about the tip. 
and how he thinks Andy knows it was her who left the tip, which doesn't phase Susan one bit. So then we get back to Bellingham's place, and Andy needs to leave as Bellingham's about to reveal the mummy's face. After he uncovers said face with Andy still there, this is where Bellingham explains to Andy how they pull out they pull out their brains with the hook through the nostrils and shows him where to cut out his innards and stuff it with flowers and spices such as onion and a fortune cookie, which happens to be a scroll written in Third Kingdom hieroglyphics, but in reality knows damn well what it reads. All right, so basically to catch people up where we are here, um, Andy and Lee are pretty scummy people. Um, Susan, Andy's sister being the worst, it's so it seems. Uh, Bellingham is just a guy who just got shafted one too many times, and he, if you ask me, he's the smartest character of the story. Um, and again, it's it's played brilliantly by a young Steve Buscemi. Like, I was kind of taken back by how young Steve Buscemi is in this movie, and it's only 30 years old. It's not like an 80s film at all. I kept on thinking this came out in 89, but then I looked the other day, and it's like, no. 1990, actually, middle of 1990. 1990. May 4th. Like, I have my notes. William Hickey died seven years afterwards. Yeah, William Hickey. Mm-hmm. The blessing! Christmas vacation fame. Alright, um... So, later that night, Susan's leaving, telling Lee that she's gonna go return the library books and see Andy. Um... He calls her out and going to see Bellingham instead, and she said that she's just going to go talk to him and throw him off track since he has the hots for her. Bellingham, this is the, um, the scene where Bellingham takes that scroll, and it's revealed that this scroll, when he reads it out loud, it awakens this mummy. And this is your typical vengeance story, if you haven't gathered yet. Like, he's using this mummy, not really for profit, but more or less to take to, upon revenge for being shafted from this Penrose scholarship. Um, so the mummy is awakened. Um, Lee is asleep. No, Susan. No, this is... Okay, I'm getting Lee, ahead of myself. Lee is asleep on the couch. Belly, yeah, no, I'm not. We're getting ahead of ourselves here because this is where he reads the scroll as Andy's in his room upstairs and the, 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 uh, the power goes out and Andy goes out he yells out for Bellingham to fix it since it's outside of his room to no avail. And he goes to fix it. And when the mummy comes out, it knocks him down. Remember, Andy's outside fixing the, the fuse box in the dark. And then the mummy walks by and just <laughs> knocks him over and walks like, get out of my way. Knocks him over and walks out and does the same to Susan but off camera because we hear we hear about that when they find her on the staircase. Um. Which, for in, turn, in time, I'm going to find out this mummy's coming after Lee. So Susan's in Bellingham's room, and he offers her some brandy. While making her a drink, she goes and hides the fetish over his fireplace as Andy watches. Um, he comes in and watches her do it. The three uh, talk about what just happened, and an obvious Bellingham says it was a thief who got off with all of his rings and must have been on drugs. Andy then looks at the closed tomb and says, at least he didn't get get away with lot 249. Now we can talk about Lee. Lee is asleep on the couch now at home watching the original Dawn of the Dead on TV. Always got to point that out. I love that movie. Um, 
he's woken up to the sound of broken glass that is that you see the the mummy punched through with. Um, he gets up and goes to investigate. Then we get this really awesome shot, probably one of my favorite shots in the movie. It's it's a it's a shot of the mummy front and center, and he's preparing the hanger in front of a bookcase, and the camera is panning from left to right, focusing on Lee as he's investigating. But front and center is this mummy as the can as the camera's camera. The camera is panning from left to right. You get this cool shot of the mummy just centered in the middle, just in front of a bookcase, prepping the uh, his hook. And that's what happens. He gets Lee in the kitchen, pushes him up against the uh, refrigerator, and proceeds to insert this hanger up through his nostril. And you see, you don't see the action take place. All you see is the mummy just yanking. And that, that effect is enough. I mean, I, can, I get the I, idea. I, I get the gist. You don't like, see anything. All you see is the mummy just doing yeah, this, just yanking. Yeah. But you can that, tell what he's like, doing, and that's painful enough so thinking about it. I just it. looked away because I didn't want to... It's pretty gnarly. It's it's a good effect. It's disgusting. <laughs> uh, Susan gets home, and she immediately finds Lee's brains on a fruit platter by the front door, and then she runs towards the back of the house, calling for him, and she stops to find a bloody handprint on the refrigerator before Lee's dead body on the floor. And then when she looks over, she catches a glimpse of the mummy from behind walking out of the house and is... Being strangely calm about everything for some reason. She just found her lover dead on the ground, brutally murdered. And then she sees a mummy walk out of her house, but it doesn't really phase her. Like she just chases him out and just stops by the doorway and just gives this hmm, something funny's going on here look. And it's like we're just gonna ignore Lee's dead body on the floor here. Okay. Andy about it and stuff. I'm over here like she's not even crying. The police are just there. She's not crying. Yeah. And it's, I'm like, okay, you obviously didn't care about him. Yeah. So it's it's weird. Andy wakes up later that night in his bed. He's shown walking down. It's, it's another cool shot. Um, it's centered on the stairwell. The left side is people coming up. The right side is people going down. And that's what happens on the right side. You have Andy coming down the steps, putting his coat on, and then he hears the phone ring. And while this is happening, on the left side, you see the mummy walking up, and they're supposed to meet in the middle. But Andy turns around to go up back up to his room to answer the phone. And Bellingham's shown letting the mummy back into his room after Andy goes back up. So it's revealed that Susan's the one who made the phone call from her crime scene of a house. She asks him if he's busy, and then we get a cool transfer shot to after the funeral with Andy and Susan, still dressed in black, Having a drink together and talking, she tells him that she lied to the police, that she actually saw who killed Lee. She says that he was thin and filthy and stinking like rotten flowers. This is when Andy realizes it was the mummy from Lot 249. So next, uh, I mean, at this point, I'm still with this story. I mean, there's not really too much to, to, to comment on here. Um... Now we got the dean and the museum curator along with security confronting Bellingham in his room about the fetish that Susan hid. He tells them that it was Susan who stole it and planted it. When Andy comes in and asks Bellingham what's going on, Bellingham tells him he's a little busy at the moment. And then the dean tells Andy he's packing and leaving the university. 
This is when the curator opens up the tomb to reveal that it's empty, and he says it would have been a nice acquisition if the mummy had come with it. And it did, but it's not there at the moment. <laughs> Andy asks what happened to the mummy, and Bellingham just gives him a smirk like he suddenly gained the upper hand. Um, and then, yeah, Susan. This is kind of one of those uh, satisfying deaths. Back at Susan's, she's packing these things before the mummy enters the room. She throws a fire, pl- a fire flower pot at him. A fire pot. A fire pot. <laughs> she throws a flower pot at him and makes him run for the window. Uh, this is when the mummy takes the scissors, cuts her side open, and begins stuffing her with flowers as she's seen screaming out for help. So many ways she could have ran, avoided this situation, but she goes for the window in the corner of the room. Just it's just your typical eighty or your typical hard mistake. Love it. Without them, we would not have these awesome scenes like the one with her side being cut open and I stuffed. I forgot how brutal these scenes were. Like now, talking about. We haven't even really gotten to the cream of the crop yeah. yet. <laughs> Believe me, like these move this this whole movie kind of like. Trend, it, it just amplifies a crescendo. It's the like a crescendo. Yeah, it's a, it's like, a crescendo of deaths. Yeah, they get more glory as it goes. Exactly. Um, Annie runs out of his dorm next to his sister's place, and then he finds her bloody body sitting up on a chair wrapped in bloody paper like a mummy. I think that's a cool shot. Back at Bellingham's dorm, he's seen holding the scroll as the power is cut and the lights go out on him. When he goes out to check on the, the fuse, he's knocked out by Andy. Wakes up, tied to a chair, in front of the fireplace. Andy takes Bellingham's master thesis and starts ripping it up and setting it all over, setting it all around him, pouring gas, uh, pouring lighter fluid all around and on him, telling him he's gonna start a fire under his chair and roast his nuts because he killed his sister and best friend. Bellingham denies doing it. Andy says that <clears throat> that's right. It was his friend Lot Two Four Nine. As he goes to the tomb and opens it, revealing the mummy back inside now. Andy then proceeds to break off all of his fingers except for his middle finger, and then he begins squirting lighter fluid all over him. When he goes to get matches, Bellingham begins reciting the scroll from memory. Grow, grow a light, ascend a light, rise a light, come forth a light. Our darkness remove. Shut up, Remove thyself from memory. Open tat, open nap, open his eyes. But uh, he's doing this before Andy's able to tape his mouth shut. Um, And, yeah, unbeknownst to Andy, the mummy's up. Rise up. As the mummy slowly approaches Andy, he begins cutting him apart with a battery-operated carver in case the fuse gets blown again. Leg, arm with the middle finger, and half of his head are cut off. Andy says he's not going to apologize for his sister in LA and he's not going to go to the cops because no one's going to believe a 3,000-year-old mummy is doing all this. It's got a point. Mm-hmm. After slicing off the top of its head, Andy sits, sits the uh, top of the mummy's head on top of the fire as it's revealed that he destroyed the rest of the body already. When I say fire, I mean fireplace fire. Not He didn't start a fire on Bellingham. Like Bellingham doesn't get torched. Like That never happens. Mm-hmm. When he asks for the scroll, um, Bellingham tells him that where it is, and then that's when Andy takes the scroll and burns it. Or does he? No. Because Bellingham is next the next day shown leaving campus in a taxi. 
telling Andy he won't see him again, but he'll find a way to keep in touch. During the drive, he begins to laugh hysterically, pissing off the taxi driver who asks what's going on, what's so funny, and that's when he uh, tells him he was thinking of a guy he knows who couldn't distinguish a Third Dynasty sacred scroll from a piece of post-Alexandrian pictogram porn. His words, not mine. Andy's in his room with the phone, on the phone with his mom, telling her that he'll be home after the finals are over. It's weird. It's like, yeah, your daughter, my sister's then. dead, but I'm gonna, tr- I'm gonna tough out school. Actually, nothing happened. Trot along. <laughs> I'm gonna come home after school. Never mind the deaths and making sure you're okay, mom. <laughs> after he hangs up, there's a knock at the door, and a dead Lee and Susan open up and tell him Bellingham sends his regards. So at this point of the film, I'm all in on this ride because I I was going to wait till the end of this to talk about like what the favorite things are. And we still will get into that at when, when I'm done this, but just a little discussion for later discussion. This is my favorite story of the three. Um, and I, I just think it's a great way to kick this film off. So I just wanted to add that. And back to the movie. We're back in Betty's kitchen. She tells Timmy that he told that story very well and that it's almost one o'clock. She then opens up the oven to reveal a large cooking tray that's intended that's intended for Timmy. That's when Timmy tells her he has another story, the best story, that he had to stop reading twice because he was so damn scared. And that's when we get to the cat from hell, which once again, this was developed. This was originally a Stephen King story um, that was intended to be a part of Creepshow Two. Now, sidebar: Creepshow Two, obvious sequel to the 1982 original um, George A. Romero's film. This is where the director of this movie, John Harrison, came from. That movie made a lot of money. It had a modest budget like this film did. I think it had the same budget as this, as a matter of fact, to th- like 2 or $3.5 million. And it went on to gross like $25 million, which is a lot back then for especially a studio genre film. But then five years later, they go and make Creepshow 2 and just give them the shaft. They killed they, – they, they, they give them half a budget. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> Creepshow 2 is a $3.5 million budget. Creepshow 1 had an $8 million budget. That's why this makes sense now. $8 million still made a lot of money. But then they cut it. Even though it made so much money for Warner Brothers, they went and trimmed the budget in half for the sequel. It still made money, but in cutting the budget, you're also cutting your stories and stuff because they that movie also had five stories planned and it ended up only featuring three. This was one of the two stories I got cut. The other one is a, um, a tale called Pinfall, which was never shot or anything like that. It never went on to any other movie like this did. But it, I think that there was a comic adaptation of that. You can read it in comic form. So if people out there, if Pinfall, Creepshow 2, it's out there in comic form. If you know what I'm talking about, cool. Anyway, back to this. So Cat from Hell begins uh, so yeah Cat from Hell was originally going to be in Creepshow 2 now it's in this. It begins with a taxi cab pulling up in front of a large mansion at night. 
hitman by the name of Halston gets out and goes to tip the driver when he's told that it's already taken care of before Drogon yells for the driver to wait and f- wait for him to wait for him and to come inside. Right. Uh, this is the first of many POV shots from Halston as he enters the mansion and meets Drogon for the, by the fireplace. Um, this movie is this is my most this is my favorite shot film not film this story is my favorite like has my favorite cinematography of the movies i love the blue cut-ins and cutouts from when he's telling the story from past to present the way they do the transfer shots of that whereas all the blue shots are mean it's the past and you know obviously oh. the par- yeah that's how I that I thought it was just nighttime no the blue oh. shots are um, the story he's telling. Yeah, because I remember... And that's why they always cut in from blue to regular. And that was all done on, mm-hmm. on a big stage. Like, there's a cool shot with William Hickey talking and it's color. And then you see a, a blue car appear from behind him over his shoulder. And it looks like that was done like in post or whatever. But no, that was all done practically on location. What they did was they had the car in the background. They had a mesh screen in between and they just changed it was just a mixture of panning the camera and flicking the lights that's all that was done i remember you telling me we were watching tales of the crypt and you're like um it was night it was nighttime i was like why is it blue and you're like oh because that's how it they're filming the daytime, but the, it's supposed to be nighttime because there's a little kid actor. Yeah, that was yeah, that, that was different though. That's not yeah, this yeah, is yeah. different than that. Yeah, you know that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. In my so head, I what? Was like, it's nighttime though. They're filming the day. All right. So what Madeline's talking about is I showed her an episode of Tales from the Crypt recently, and there was an episode where it's supposed to be taking place at nighttime outside, but it's very obviously daytime. Well, I was explaining to her that yeah. When you're cutting corners in production, that was a a big tactic. Like, I mean, movies and shows still do that. It's just it happened. It's far and few in between now these days. Exactly, you don't see it as often as you used to because it was just it was kind of a. It didn't really look good. It doesn't have a good look, especially movies that did it before. They don't really hold up now. So yeah. Um, so he comes in. The, the, Drogon is an elderly, elderly man in a wheelchair. He tells Halston that he wants a hit, and he got his name from a Saulogia. He then tells him his victim is right behind him. That's when Halston quickly turns around with his switchblade in hand and just sees a cat. <laughs> <laughs> the cat looks like my cat, too. It's like I'm going to be going home just staying away from my cat. Like, you... Yeah. You stay back. <laughs> yeah. He tells him that he should kill him. He should kill him for the joke. Just to... He, all right. Halston tells Drogon he should kill him instead just for that joke. To Drogon replies, he don't make jokes before handing him an envelope with $50,000 inside. And as for the cat, he's gone. <laughs> he's not getting that money. <laughs> Halston sits down and is told he'll receive another $50,000 when he has proof of the hit. Halston can't believe he's being hired to kill a cat. $50,000 if you add it up. Exactly. Drogon tells him he's already killed three other people before telling the story of their demises. 
Drogon begins telling the story of how there were there used to be four of them living there. Excellent, and then this is where the excellent in and out transfer shots start. It was him, his sister, his sister's best friend, and a hired man named Richard. He calls them all a rich collection of old, unhappy people. And then the cat enters the house. <laughs> Richard sees it first and unsuccessfully tries scaring it away. His sister takes the cat in against Drogon's wishes. Back in present time, Drogon gets worked up and takes a little white pill to calm himself down. So it's revealed that this little pill he just took is basically the premise of all of this. It's revealed that he runs Drogon Pharmaceuticals, which is one of the biggest drug companies in the world. And his biggest success comes from that pill called Tridormal Phenobarbin Phenobarbin Compound G, which is said to be a special painkiller hallucinogen for old people that's also very expensive and habit-forming, much to Halston's dismay. Back to the story, the cat kills the sister first. She's on her way to feed the cat when she's tripped down the stairs by the cat, killing her when she breaks her, you know, fall on steps. You break some stuff, you die. That's what happens here. Especially when you're old, <laughs> you can break stuff away. No offense to no offense to our old listeners. <laughs> Carolyn, his sister's friend, protects the cat from Drogon, and it kills her while she's sleeping. How does it kill her? By smothering her face with its whole body. And it's also worth mentioning that she died at midnight, just like his sister did. Everybody now, knows. yeah, they all die at midnight. <laughs> but this is kind of a goofy shot. I, I as as much as I love the effects and stuff, like this shot of this woman with this whole entire cat's body wrapped around her face is just it's goofy, and she's like trying to get it away, and just it just smothers her to death. It's just mm-hmm. and a, a goofy can't shot. Really do that if you think about reality. <laughs> this is a movie. Where mummies come back to life. <laughs> and apparently gargoyles are... Cats can kill. And gargoyles are a real thing. So are we really going to argue the validity of... Reality. No, the validity of yeah. what that is. Yeah. Okay. Didn't think so. So he finally has Richard to handle the cat. Which took him an entire day to find and capture. On the way to the vet to have the cat put down. The cat escapes the basket in the back seat. And it just gets loose in the car. Causes Richard to lose control and crash the car at midnight. A week later to the day, the cat returns. Halston questions the legitimate the legitimacy of these stories when Drogon assures him it's been sent from hell to punish him because the cat is tested because the drug is tested on cats. So it's revealed that there's five there there were five thousand cats. <laughs> Wait, what? Jesus. 5,000 cats killed him. You did, yeah, the story, he says, when he tells him the story, he says there's there were 5,000 cats that were killed during these tests. And that this cat was sent back from hell to punish him. <laughs> it is at this point, the cat jumps up on Houston's lap and he says he can do the hit right now. But then the cat scratches his hand and he runs away, pissing Houston off. So apparently this cat can understand people <laughs> yeah this cat can it's it's to my understanding that this cat can definitely understand yeah. human interaction and words like he can't until last minute hey man uh, it's it's the genre it's, smart. it's the genre i'm going with it the cat's smart for plot purposes yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh drogan says it's not going to be an easy hit before leaving for t- leaving uh for town in a taxi cab waiting outside 
He tells Halston before he leaves that there's food, there's liquor, there's everything. Everything you could ever want. When in reality, there's nothing. <clears throat> Drogon leaves, eating more pills inside. I'm surprised he hasn't overdosed on these things. Halston re-enters the dark mansion. There's some more POV cat shots as he's talking to the cat and setting up his weapons from a smaller briefcase. So let's talk about this briefcase. So, again, this. keep it in the back of your mind. This is all for a cat. He whips out a briefcase and it, I see at least two little pistols in there. Mm-hmm. He has a garret wire, a garrot, a garroting wire, and... Little vials and needles, syringes. So, he goes for the needle first. He's gonna just, you know, put the cat down by giving him a lethal injection of whatever. Take it slow, see how easy it is. That's what he said, exactly. Take it nice and slow, exactly. Good one, you remember that. Good one. (laughs) Um, he walks around talking to himself. That's when that was said, and the cat. Discovering the place is merely empty before being by the tap before being attacked by the cat again. Pissing him off further. <laughs> Gotta take out <laughs> He tells himself he can't get himself hot. He can't get himself hot. He, when he gets hot, he makes mistakes. And that's when he pours out a drink and realizes he's been cut worse than expected because he sees his, he's been bleeding all over his, his shirt and his arm. $100 shirt. His $100 shirt. $100 shirt. <laughs> which I've bought shirts from Walmart. For a tenth of that price, that looks better than that. And unless you look at the tag, you're not going to know it's from Walmart. <laughs> that was a joke. I knew that, but still. <laughs> I doubt his, his $100 shirt came from Walmart. You never know. <laughs> in 1990? <laughs> believe me. He, weren't, he was not shopping at Walmart in 1990 for $100 shirts. Um, yeah, he's, he's, he said... He, Give he what what happens next? He pours the drink. He's got that's right. He, he gives this as his reason to kill him now. Cause he's he really really mad. So he brings out his briefcase again. No no no. Cause no, before that the cat attacks again. He goes and attacks okay. him once again. Cause that's when he uh, claws his uh, crotch area. Mm-hmm. And he goes back to his case like you're just getting ready to say and just yanks everything out. Randomly and has a gun. He's got this big ass blaster cannon. Tucked away underneath of everything with a laser pointer. It's 11.45 at this point. It's it's worth mentioning that. Mm -hmm. So he's got 15 minutes. He's now got a trap set up for the cat involving food, a TV, and his stupid ass hiding behind the desk with the gun pointed that way. No, he's just sitting and watching TV. (laughs) Hoping the cat comes in to get get the food, which is what he does exactly. But when he goes to shoot the cat... He realizes right his target through. is off. He shoots the TV first, and then he goes to shoot the cat again. Both times, it's aimed at his head, and he misses completely both times. He's like, that's impossible. No, it didn't go through the cat. He just missed. His, hard, his target was off, is what he mentions. Um, chases the cat around more. Uh, midnight strikes, and that's when the cat's like, screw this. It's finally, finally, exactly. I'm t- finally going in for the death blow. Jumps off the top of the, the clock and into Halston's mouth. Okay. Oh my god, I hated this scene. <laughs> I hated it so much. What? Yeah. So I want you to talk about this scene. I want you to describe this scene. Go Disgusting. on. Disgusting. 
No, no, no. Tell me. What? I, no, I, I want you to do the talking for this scene. You loved it so much. I want to hear your I words. I did not like it so much. I hated it so much. I feel like it was the worst scene out of the whole movie. This cat dives into this dude's mouth and slowly starts going into him. Gets into his stomach. I mean, this guy's flailing around. The cat's legs and tails fl- flicking around back and forth and shit. And the cat finally gets totally inside and enters his stomach, killing him. He's bloated completely at this point. Because Drogon comes back the next morning and he finds his bloated corpse, Halston's bloated corpse. He's in disbelief that the cat's killed again. And then the broken clock goes off as the cat starts slowly exiting Halston. It's like, ooh, the clock's going off. It's time to come out. So, yeah, then this, like, gush of blood squirts out of Halston's mouth, first of all, all over Drogon. And then the cat just jumps out of Halston on the Drogon's lap and is kind of, like, giving himself a bath while Drogon's just having a heart attack, flipping out, Uh reaching for his pills frantically, Drops them all over the place, and he just dies of a heart attack. cat's filled with blood <laughs> he literally spent the night in this dude's stomach <laughs> obviously the cat doesn't care <laughs> so. no and and that yeah. yeah that's and if you look closely too when um Drogon 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 when Drogon gets home if when it looks at the what's the guy's name the hitman I I yeah I Houston Houston yeah if you look at him closely his mouth's actually wider yeah uh-huh, and that's what really got me out of the whole thing, was that's disgusting. I don't want to see that. It's wider, and then when, uh-huh. like, the cat actually does get out of it, it's, like, it flops around. It's kind of, it's, like, his jaw's gone. It's broken, apparently, and, like, it's, you just see the, if you look close enough, like, the bottom of his jaw is just flapping around. I, I hate it so much. <laughs> and that wraps, that's, that's it, the cat from hell. All right, so we're back at Betty's kitchen now. And she's clipping flowers and telling Timmy that that was a scary story as well. But her favorites are love stories. This is when Timmy mentions another story that's really scary, but it's a love story too. One in New York. Since she's got other stuff to cook, she has time to hear it. And that's what takes us into the final story, which is titled Lover's Vow. And that begins 
Ten years earlier, with a shot of a gargoyle statue looking down on artist Preston's studio loft. Preston is working on a project when he gets stressed and intentionally destroys it before remembering that he was supposed to meet his agent as the phone rings. When the phone rings and he answers it, it's the bartender telling him some guy's waiting for him and that he's late. At said bar, his agent Wyatt orders another drink when Preston runs in. When he asks Wyatt if he brought another check for him, Wyatt ends up dropping him due to becoming an an irrelevant artist who no one buys from any longer. And that's that. No money. No no, um, representation. He's just being dropped. And kind of kicking the guy while he's down. Because when we first introduced to Preston, he's already a struggling artist. And we can see that from his loft. And the amount of stress that this work is, or lack thereof, is putting on him. Um, so Preston says that he's broke and he can't, live on, he can't live on nothing. To which Wyatt replies, and I can't live on 10% of nothing. Preston calls him a monster, but he says he's an agent. And that for an agent... Being a monster is just credentials before setting the bill down and leaving. Preston's beyond tanked up at this point. Like we, we cut to the next scene. It's still at the bar. It's later on. And Preston's gone. He is sloshed to the moon. And it's now last call. There's another drunk that's sitting there named Maddox who's asleep at the bar. And when Preston asks about him, the bartender tells him that he'll let him out in the morning before a shot for the road. They go out and lock up. The bartender's offer to take Preston home, and when they go outside, there's a POV shot from the roof of the bartender locking up as Preston goes across the alley to urinate. While this happens, the bartender notices something fly down from the alley, or into the alley, rather. <clears throat> he goes to investigate with a gun, and a gargoyle appears in front of him. He fires at it, and the creature knocks his hand off, and it flies at Preston with the gun still in place. This, this some, These are some really freaking awesome gore effects i gotta say in this this moment the gargoyle then claws half this guy's face off damn before knocking his entire head off afterwards so not only does he just claw off half his face with one swipe he just goes and knocks the whole damn thing off afterwards um and Preston screams for Maddox, and the gargoyle appears in front of him like he's banging on the door trying to get the drunken Maddox to wake up and let him in Gargoyle appears and says, your life in exchange for a promise. He's promised, he's forced to promise if he lets him go, he will never ever mention him to anyone, to anyone ever, never, just ever. And then he promises and he says, cross your heart before clawing his chest and flying away. Now please, please don't. You are right in exchange for a promise. You got it. If I let you go, you must swear you Never see you saw me. Never see you heard me speak. Never tell anyone how I look. Never repeat what I have said. A promise. Forever. You got me kidding. I, I promise. Cross your heart. Preston then proceeds to run away and he stops to vomit when he sees a Carola walking around. Well, she's walking quickly away from what appears to be something that's got her shaken up. Preston confronts her and asks her to be quiet. And then he says, what are you doing around here? This is dangerous. And she said that she was looking for a taxi. 
and he tells her that she shouldn't be around here so late. This place is around that his place is around the corner. She can use his phone. So at this point, it's like you're gonna take this dude's word for it. Who's a dude who's supposed to be slow? I don't care how what I don't care what you say. No one sobers up like that. You know, he should still be a little like, uh, but he meets this woman who's already kind of panicked when we meet her, but she's just all willy nilly. Sure, I'll go back to your place. <laughs> Whatever. We got we got to let the plot advance somehow. Sure. They get back to his place and she mentions she was supposed to meet her friends, but got lost inside. She asked him why he was out so late and he tells her about his agent and what happened. He calls the police, but then he hangs up when he realizes the entire situation isn't sitting right because he kind of like looks down at his chest and holds it for a second and then hangs up the phone and he tells her that the line's busy and asks what her name is. After they converse a little bit more, she answers, um, like I said, and then she asks for a drink. The two start getting to know each other. She ends up helping him with his chest wounds and he suggests that she waits until morning for a taxi the two event the two eventually become intimate the next day he's seen sketching what he saw the night before preston goes out the next morning and checks the scene of the night before um this is where he sees a bunch of cops and medics around um scene of a crime um we notice that maddox is there uh, seemingly being blamed for what happened um but then we find out that that's not the case at all Preston returns to his loft. Carol is gone. He begins more sketches from uh, memories of the encounter. Um, and then she returns. Uh, when she returns, he quickly hides the drawings because he's got to keep this all secret, of course. She tells him that she called for a friend of a friend who owns her own gallery and told him about Preston's artwork. And she got him in with the owner of the hottest gallery downtown, which makes Preston become ecstatic. So now we're at that said art gallery. And it's said that Preston's pieces are going for as high as $23,000 and that he is a smash. Maddox shows up. He's drunk. The two have a conversation like everything's fine. And although he keeps mentioning that he died and kind of becomes more obvious, obviously drunk um, when he the, the two leave, um, the two being Preston and Carola. They get back to, uh, they get back to Preston's place. And this is when Carola tells him that she is pregnant and that he goes and proposes to her, to which she happily accepts. Can we just talk about how they just met, too? Yeah. Like, they just met a day before. I think, like no, it's not really said how much time has passed mm-hmm. at this point, but the fact that he's become a sensation and has art now going for over $23,000, that tells me that... I want to say weeks, if not months, have went by. Mm-hmm. Even though, again, it's never established it's still in the story. Very. <clears throat> the only, the only, yeah, all they yeah. really focus on is all, the only thing they hit home is the ten years part, mm-hmm. which we're not at yet. Um, well, we're at that now. Actually, it's ten <laughs> years later, and uh, dressed up, Carola finds a piece of Preston's old sketch art. It's hidden in the desk uh, before their two kids enter the room with Wyatt. Uh, so now Wyatt's back in the picture. Uh, being the agent for he's more of like a grandfather actually because he's babysitting you, you see that he's watching these kids as the two walk around town because he asks what they're celebrating and Carola says it's the 10 year anniversary of the night they first met now this is the part 
I actually had to rewind it and, and watch it again of subtitles because I was like, did she just say what I think she just said? <laughs> the little daughter who's like not even 10, obviously. I'm going to say she's like nine, obviously, mm-hmm. the story. She goes, you mean when you thought he was going to push you up against the wall and <laughs> rape you? That's what she asked. And Carola kind of casually just says, yeah, like – that's a big gag between the family. Like, mommy and daddy met by <laughs> by a, a rape attempt. Like, what? What are we doing here? It's kind of confusing. Um, next shot, Preston and Carola walking around the streets together, reminiscing about 10 years prior. They get home, and Preston checks on the sleeping kids before Wyatt leaves. Preston then slowly begins to tell her about what he saw that night because he wanted to be completely truthful to her and felt that she should know what really happened. What's wrong? I'm not making this up. I'm telling you the truth. You promised you'd never tell! This is when she gets pissed. She says, I can't believe you lied. You, bro- you, you, you didn't keep your promise. And it's revealed that she is the gargoyle. And her and even the kids in the other room are slowly transforming into their true creature forms. It is outside of Rick Baker's effects for American Werewolf in London. This is probably the second greatest transformation sequence I've ever seen on a movie. Even though he's not, tur- she's not turning into a werewolf, she's turning into a gnarly-looking gargoyle, and just the practical effects are just so top-notch. I mean, K and B, this was like their first big film, and it K and B is still a big 
company to this day who do they I mean Nicotero it pretty much runs The Walking Dead and that just goes to show how big that company's be you know become and it started with this and this in my opinion this transformation shot like it is some seriously impressive practical effects work yeah. especially when there's a shot with her ripping the top of her head open and then the actual gargoyle form like pulsing like not blowing up and it was they did it with a balloon it was dumb how they did this is insane and Preston's begging her to like turn back and then yeah that, like nothing happened like he still wants to be with her He's, I'm like he, I would not want to be with someone after that <laughs> yeah and then yeah Preston tells her that he always loved her and she says she loves him too but he broke their vow and that his seal that sealed his fate or his destiny um and that's when she takes a rips out his throat bites you know takes a big old chunk out of his neck and he collapses and dies the three creatures the three creatures fly out through the glass ceiling together to Wyatt's confusion as he's entering the taxi cab the final shot of the story is all three gargoyles together now as a statue on top of the roof place from the beginning and that wraps lover's vow so now we are back in Betty's kitchen she tells Timmy that he really saved the best one for last. He said that's not even the best story and starts flipping through the pages frantically for another one. Betty said that it's too late and begins entering his cage as he tells her about something happening in the, in, in the moment. No. He tells her about everything happening in the moment at this point and starts kind of like ad-libbing a story about about he about he was yeah he was sick from school and he went to a woman's house and got tricked and then he talks about how he realized he had marbles in his pocket and then timmy pulls out a handful of marbles and he said that that he threw them down and that, that she tripped when she didn't notice him and that's exactly what he does he throws the marbles down and she trips and falls back onto the skewers and drops the keys in the process and this is when timmy grabs the keys unlocks himself pushes um the platter that she's on into the oven she burns alive he grabs the chocolate chip cookies that are on the counter <laughs> breaks the fourth wall by looking at the camera and saying don't, don't you just love happy endings and that is the final story if you include that as a story Fin. That is rap. That's a rap. Fiend is is uh, means it's Swedish for end. Fiend oh. or finish. No, it's either fiend. 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 <laughs> fiend. So yeah, that's that. Um. Okay. I got some trivia. Not a lot. Tom Savini considers this the real Creep Show three. Speaking of, I talked about the cat from hell being Creep Show two. Lover's vow comes from a Japanese folklore called Yukiana but features gargoyles instead of a ghost. Uh, this features Romero films Dawn of the Dead and Martin being shown in different scenes. A sequel was planned, but never made it past pre-production. Um, oh, and it was so cold on the set of New York City when they were shooting the alley scenes. Oh, I forgot. Yeah, that's New York City. Yeah, the, the alley scenes with the gargoyle. They said that the gargoyle was on set. The mechanism that was moving its head around, it would freeze. 
and the batteries inside would drain. The coldness would, it was so cold, it would just automatically drain the batteries. So they were running around frantic, little heaters trying to warm things up just to get enough energy to get a quick shot. And that's how they did it. That's how they were able to pull off most of the effects in that scene. Um, and that's that's the trivia. Um, how, so we have three stories, and I guess four if you want to count the wraparound. Yeah. What's your favorite of the four? I've already went on to say mine's Lot 249. That's my favorite story of, of all four. What is your favorite? The gargoyle one, I think. Lover's, Lover's Vow? Lover's Vow. Okay. I like the twist, how it was really Carola. I can't really pronounce Carola. it. Like, Carola. 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 Yeah. Um, I like the twist, how she was the gargoyle the whole time. Um, yeah, I've always, I've always dug that twist, too. Yeah. And this was like... I, I can't put a time in place and when I first saw this movie, but it was another one that, you know, I watched when I was younger. Um, the, the cat story, even though the effects in that are just insane and the cinematography is my favorite of the, bo- of the bunch. That story as a whole was my least favorite. The way it goes for me is lot 249, then lover's vow mm-hmm. and then the wraparound and then cat from hell. That's was- my order. What's yours? I'm going to do Cat from Hell for my um, actual favorite, but then I was like, the only reason I would have is because the cat looks like my cat. I would have been scared of my cat for the rest, for a good while. But no, I think the Gargoyles um, won. Lot from Hell? Not Lot from Hell. And speaking of Cat from Hell. Lot from Hell. <laughs> lot from Hell. <laughs> Whatever it's called. The Gargoyle story. Yeah, so, that one scared me. I mentioned earlier that this movie had a bunch of people that did the music. I think I named like five different people. And that's because each each story had a different composer. Just like each story has its it's is shot differently. Like Lot 249 has a warm kind of a gold brown color palette the whole story on the camera whereas obviously Cat from Hell is dark and blue. And then Lover's Vow is like dark and gritty. It's that New York, like real raw feel. And then, of course, the wraparound stories, you're, you're happy go lucky. You know, not everything's what it seems kind of thing. <clears throat> and as far as like the acting and all goes, I don't have anything bad to say about any of the acting in this movie. I, I think everyone plays their part, you know, as, as good as they can. I think everyone, I think every character got the best acting that they could. They got good roles, too. So I don't think... Plus, I like I don't know actors from back then, but I don't think I could see any other actors really playing. Everything everything actors. about this movie f- falls into place. Mm-hmm. And if, it makes sense. And I, I will admit, re-watching this movie, my rating went up. It Actually, I liked it more, even though I've seen this movie a dozen times. It went up this time. And what was it always when you were younger? Well we'll, well, we'll we'll talk about that. Let's just, you know what? Let's just wrap this up. We're going to wrap it up. Because um, that's where I'll get into it. Uh, so this film has a final body count of 10. My unbiased MVP pick, mine for this movie, goes to Mr. Steve Buscemi. As Bellingham, I think he is a revelation. I think he is the standout performance of this movie. I'm still 
kind of taken back that they were able to get Steve Buscemi, even though he was more of a young, lesser-known actor 30 years ago. He still had a reputation, and he was I know he was big in the New York scene, um, and a lot of play acting and whatnot. I don't know. It's just kind of funny to me seeing, even Christian Slater, um, but that was, he was still kind of getting big 30 years ago. I mean, I think Christian Slater followed this up with that movie Mobsters, and um, we will not be talking about that on this show. <laughs> so, yeah, who's your MVP pick? Timmy. Timmy. Matthew Lawrence? Thinking about it, I was going to do the priest, but I'm like, I've, we talked about the Dude, priest if I, too much. <laughs> if you were to pick the priest, I would have backhanded. No. <laughs> <laughs> I think Timmy. Like, if I'm going to be serious, I think Timmy. I get it. You're a kid. You like the kid actors. I, I, I respect that. No, I just, I don't know. I, I like Timmy. I like <laughs> All right. What is your, uh, my B kind of rewind, most rewatchable moment? It's just the story. It's a lot of 249, the iteration of that <laughs> movie. I mean, if I'll just rewatch that ten times. Just forget about the whole movie. But your B kind of rewind most rewatchable moments should be your favorite moment of the movie. And if it's broke, it's a mm-hmm. movie. It's an anthology form. I'm just gonna pick my favorite story and put that in there. And that's exactly what I did. Lot two forty nine. That's what's yours? What did you put in your notes? Um, there's actually two. I only put one. Like actually writing it down was Carola turning into a gargoyle. The transformation scene. Yeah. But if it wasn't that, talking about, like, I wasn't really thinking, so talking about it now um, was the cat going into, what's his name? Halston. Halston's mouth. So one of those. You like the brutal stuff. I dig it. <laughs> Usually I don't, too. And like I feel that's... like I, hearing those two come from you, I'm looking at what I put down, and I feel very underwhelmed and I'm kind of like in regret right now in a little state of regret but I'm not going to change my answer because that would just be foolish of me um I'm not doing it again yeah you did that for a teenager so my my double feature pairing is come on guys creep show an anthology film you're gonna follow up with another with another anthology film yeah that's mine creep show all right so just like uh that's our second time that's the second time we've had the same wow yeah, because the first episode was... Clueless. We Clueless, both said Mean Girls. Mean Girls, yeah. This is the second time no, on the show sure. that we've had the same double feature pairing. Great minds think alike. I just don't see anything else that would... Really, besides Creepshow. Because Creepshow and Tales from the Dark Side, they both have stories. They're both horror. I don't really see anything else, any other movie. Right. Because a lot of movies don't really have stories like that, besides, like, shows. and Right. Okay. So, unless they picked a show, it would be Tales from the Crypt, but that's a show. So I'm Not an anthology movie. Yeah. So I'm just going to do Creep Show. Okay. Um, Star Power. All right. So I'll go first. I gave Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, a final star rating of four stars originally i did have this as three and a half but i i feel that this movie it it deserves that four it deserves that extra half star i did three and a half okay three point five mostly because of the gore i don't like gore that much um i that's mainly the reason why i give it a three point five and that's one of the reasons why i gave it an additional half a score because (laughs) look and final in closing about this movie like to back up my score Look, the movie holds up 30 years later, mm-hmm. first and foremost. 
people the, still talk about it if you bring it up. Like, people will know what it is. The acting, yeah. And, and just like Tom Savini, I have actually said that this is my Creep Show 3 as well. Um, because it's that anthology feel. And mm-hmm. it's it's an anthology movie. And those are my favorite kinds of horror. I wish there were more in the world. It's unfortunate that we pretty much got this, two Creep Shows, Tales from the Hood, and then the rest has just been underwhelming stuff. No, and Trick or Treat. Uh, How can I forget that one? That's like one of the best ones. But other than those movies I just acknowledged, like, unless I'm forgetting one at the top of my head, like, it's, it's, there's a lot, there's tons of room for improvement as as far as the horror genre goes and anthology horror as a whole. Now, getting back onto the movie, like I said, the, the effects done by K and B are just I, I mean come on what else is there is needs to be said about the effects in this movie it is perfect stuff like as far as practical effects go like nothing feels or looks dated it's real it it it's got a real realistic tone like it, that's the I think that is key when looking back at these movies is the effects and what how they're deciphered as like good and bad and what holds up and what doesn't. To me, if your gore still holds up after a time, or in this case, 30 years, then good good on you. Your effects are still 30 years later holding up to some realistic, nasty stuff. And I tip my hat to the K&B crew. Um, as far as everything else goes, the acting, I, Julianne Moore... You can tell it's her first movie, but I'm not going to get into the technical stuff. I think everyone as a whole played their parts damn well. I think John Harrison does a fantastic job filming. Um, I think uh, Robert Draper's cinematography is top-notch, and the edits from Harry B. Miller III are just great stuff. Even he agrees. I watched the documentary on this. Everything about this movie, you know, looking back on it, I I can't think of a better movie to be talking about today than this. Um, I'm glad we did this episode. I'm glad we chose this movie. This was the episode you've been wanting to do for like a while now too. Not only that, like, like weeks, I just had a feeling that it was going to be a good episode. It was going to be a long episode too. So. No. Like of a lot of stories, like just stories. But, but like. I'm happy it happened, and like I always say, if you guys are just now tuning in. Or if you guys are still listening, thank you so much. We um, got our other podcast. Not our other podcast. We got a whole shrew of episodes. The Halloween Harathon is only halfway over. It's not over yet. No, no, no. Not yet by a long shot. We still got two weeks of episodes, guys. Two more weeks. Now, before I get out of here, I want to do something that I forgot to do at the top of the episode and let everyone know that they can tune in the previous episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Breaker, Stitcher, and wherever else you enjoy your favorite shows. You can follow us on Facebook.com, Mad Dad Movie Review, Instagram.com, Mad Dad Movie Review, YouTube.com, Mad Dad Movie Review, and finally Twitter.com, Mad Dad Movie Pod. And as always, if you have any questions, comments, or requests, email. always email us at maddadmoviereview at gmail.com. All right. 
it's like a tongue twister. Like try saying that and then mad that movie. I do every week, every episode. Um, before we get out of here, you want to add anything? All right, well, we will see you when you return full-time, or we may be seeing you sooner than that. But until next time... I'm Mads. And I'm Dad. And this has been been Mad Dad Dad Movie Movie Review. Just love happy endings.